0: It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. Left off when the clock has started.
1: This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers at VTT Technical Research Center of Finland have successfully demonstrated a new electronic refrigeration technology that can enable major leaps in the development of quantum computers. The new electronic cooling technology could replace cryogenic liquid mixtures and enable miniaturization of quantum computers. A new study published in ACS Nano shows a proof-of-concept study for a potentially more accurate COVID-19 diagnostic based on plasmonic photothermal sensing, which is able to differentiate between SARS-CoV-2 and its close relative, SARS-CoV-1. Researchers from Helmholtz Zentrum dresden Rossendorf have developed a low-cost broadband photodetector that uses a metal-organic framework. As it does not contain any cost-intensive raw materials, it can be produced inexpensively in bulk. And finally, researchers at EPFL have developed a nanodevice that operates more than 10 times faster than today's fastest transistors, and about 100 times faster than personal computers. The researchers say the high-power picosecond operation of these devices may help with some advanced medical treatment techniques, such as cancer therapy.
2: Today's episode is sponsored by MKS Instruments and their Newport brand. The Newport product portfolio consists of a full range of solutions, including precision motion control, optical tables and vibration isolation systems, photonics instruments, optics and optomechanical components. For more information, visit www.newport.com and by Hubner Photonics. A leading manufacturer of high-performance lasers, including the full range of single and multi-line cobalt lasers, C-Wave tunable lasers, and C-Flex laser combiners. A preferred supplier of lasers to major instrument manufacturers and leading research labs for cutting-edge applications in life science, spectroscopy, and quantum research. Find the right laser for your application at www.hubner-photonics.com.
0: Dr. Arthur McClelland is a principal scientist at the Center for Nanoscale Systems at Harvard University, where he's using his laboratory to research new applications for microscopy and spectroscopy. Arthur, thank you for joining us.
3: You're welcome. It's my pleasure.
0: So I want to start off. uh, First question, you work at the Center for Nanoscale Systems at Harvard. How long have you been there?
3: I've been there nine years.
0: What was it like there? Just tell me everything.
3: It's sort of this amazing playland where we I have all the tools you can imagine. Um, the center is part of the National Nanotechnology Coordinated Infrastructure Network, which is a network of nanotechnology nodes funded by the NSF. We have about 1,700 users coming through annually, and we have about 30 technical staff like myself. It's an open facility. About 900 of those users are from Harvard. The remainder are from other universities and startup companies or uh, large industry companies. We take everybody. The model is that we train the researchers to use the tools and we try to have a very comprehensive tool set. So whatever it is you want to do, whatever your question is, you come talk to the technical staff members. If I can't do it, I'll say, oh, actually, you want to go talk to Jason, let's go find him in his office. And uh, We know what each other do and we can hand off the researchers to the appropriate tool. So using the right tool to answer the right question rather than a lot of research labs have one tool that they manage to get with their startup grants and then when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail and CNS is sort of a scientific toolbox where all the tools are available and you can really have a lot of fun answering detailed nuanced questions about different things.
0: To anyone interested in anything could essentially come to your lab and be like I want to work on something.
3: Yes. So the model is we charge by the hour on the instrument, so if you need two hours of scanning electron microscope time and three hours of Raman spectroscopy time and six hours of nanofabrication, like you just charge by the hour and the technical staff is there to help you design your experiment, train you on the instruments, how to use the instruments, help you interpret the data, Um, we just don't run the samples for you because we don't have the bandwidth I have. 550 users coming through the optics lab every year, so I don't have the bandwidth to, to run all their samples, but I enjoy sitting down and talking with the researchers. What are your questions? Which tools should you use? No, actually, you don't want this tool, you want the one over there, and we'll walk across the lab and jump on the right tool and get the information they want from their sample.
0: Did that take a long time to become the master of the entire lab?
3: Uh, there's been an enormous amount of on-the-job Learning, it's fun because I never know quite what's going to walk in the lab. People bring cancer cells, they bring rat brains, they bring solar cells, they bring fuel cells, they bring ion engines and want to know about the coatings for their ion engines for their satellite. Lunar dust walked in recently, so squid have recently walked in, like wanting to look at the marine biology and how the squid grows the pen. And and so... There's a lot of fast learning on the job, but then you also start to see bigger themes. All right, you're interested in secondary structure of proteins and you're from the dental school and you're from the biophysics, but I know how to do secondary structure of proteins now. So it doesn't matter where you're coming from. A lot of the questions end up converging a lot.
0: You've referred to the work that you do there as sort of zapping things with lasers. Do you feel like you're a kid living out your dream at this point?
3: Yeah, I I admit I have a really nice gig. I get to do all the fun parts of science, but I don't have to stay in lab all night and run all the samples. I don't have to write grants and I don't have to grade problem sets. (laughs) So yeah, I I have lucked into this really amazing job where people just bring me amazing samples and I can do the the science with a lot fewer of the, the headaches.
0: And then the press release that was issued for this talk that you just gave at Simon's Rock referred to your work as the adventures in optical spectroscopy. Do you feel like it's an adventure?
3: It is always an adventure because I'm not doing the same samples every day. Uh, In grad school, that was one of the things that started to grind me down in grad school, was doing the same narrow-focused research day after day after day. And now with 500 odd researchers coming through my lab every year, I'll jump from doing 2D materials and diamonds for quantum computing to rat brains or leaves, you know, I'm learning botany on the fly as the botanists have discovered I have some useful tools and things like that. The archaeologists bring in ridiculous samples like Mayan dental inlays or sediments from the Paleolithic period and ask, you know, how hot did they fire this clay? Um, You learn lots of fun things. Um, So it's not the same every day, which makes it exciting, but it makes it (laughs) Probably scary, right? It's a little bit scary. I've managed to uh, Get over the the fear and I'm okay saying I don't know but let's find out and as a scientist saying, I don't know, especially being a scientist at Harvard is always sort of a scary, sort of dangerous, admitting your vulnerability, you know. but I, I, after nine years I can say, I don't know, but let's find out. Let's
0: if they give you a hundred samples, what percent of those do you say, I don't know?
3: At this point, for the hundred projects that come in, I'd probably say, I don't know for about 20%. It's like uh, a percentage.
0: <laughs> that's not too bad. You recently wrote a book, um, Optical Measurements for Scientists and Engineers, A Practical Guide, which was published with Cambridge University Press. How did you come about the planning, the publishing, all
3: that? It's sort of a funny story. One of the the graduate students in the chemistry department named Max Mencken had been told to go build a photoluminescence spectrometer and don't come back until you do. And his lab had two full rooms of optics, like millions of dollars of optical stuff. But everyone who knew what all this stuff was and how to use it had graduated and moved on. So Max was sort of on his own with this room of equipment that he didn't know, and he was trained as a chemist. It was all a bit overwhelming, and so he fumbled around for a while. And Max is a really smart guy. Finally, it was at the CNS, welcome back to the semester barbecue. We happened to be standing in line together and chatting, and he's like, oh, I'm supposed to build this PL spectrometer, and someone told me you're the optics guy. I'm like, yeah, so let's, let's build it. And, and so like in an afternoon, I'd, we had built what he had taken six months and failed to, to get done. And he's like, that's ridiculous, I looked for resources and then nothing to like walk me through what these things were, how to put them together, what, what am I doing? We should write a book. Uh, sure, sure, Max, we'll write a book, whatever. I, I got lots of things to do, sure. And then Max is a super motivated, super smart guy, went and got a book contract from Cambridge University Press. I'm like, oh, okay, so we're writing a book for real. And so it took us about three years to pull that all together, which was fun. But in my spare time with two kids at home and things like that, it it took a while. A lot of it was the answers that I find myself answering week in, week out with the students. So I have very cut and dried introductions to FTR, introductions to ramen that I can talk through in my sleep. And so I largely typed those out and added figures and it's always better to have a good figure rather than me waving my hands, which is what I still do now. I'm still getting used to having a book and I'll catch myself waving my hands, making my explanations. And then I say, wait, I have a, I have a good figure. Right? And I'll, I'll go grab my book and all right, now here's a good figure. And this is what I'm trying to do with my hands as I, I wave them around.
0: Talking with Arthur right now, he's actually waving his hands a lot just to express himself. Is that just a natural thing that you feel like it is the best part of you manifested through your uh, mannerisms?
3: Yeah, I, I tend to get excited and, and wave my hands around when I talk, so yeah. Um, have your students ever commented on it? Occasionally, you know, I'll have my hands and I'll be, in my head I can see the electronic energy levels and the vibrational energy levels and the electrons going up <laughs> and down and the photons coming in and the photons coming out and all my wiggly fingers in the air only make sense to me and they're like, uh, you get that blank look, you're like, oh. That's right, I am making no sense to you, especially through this is your second language. Uh, um, Let's back off and get a nice figure and we'll we'll try again. I'm really good at recognizing the blank look at this point, (laughs) just because a lot of what I do is the teaching and training of of students and most grad students in the US are English is their second language, so.
0: And now watching uh, body language is your second language in a sense. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you've used your lab to study photographs, leaves, manuscripts, and Mayan dentistry. Are you going on a plane looking for things in Africa, or are you just are things being mailed to you? How does that work?
3: I, I sit in my lab, and people bring me stuff. It's amazing. Uh, I don't have to go anywhere. The Mayan dentistry was funny because the archaeology museum at Harvard's just across the street, and the archaeology student who brought that, had come into my building every day to buy coffee at the little coffee shop and had never realized that the Center for Nanoscale Systems with $100 million of equipment is below ground and he was standing on top of this wonderful analytical resource which he could come and use and ask questions about. So no, I'm not going anywhere. Harvard has amazing collections and the researchers come to me. um, So I am getting progressively lazier in terms of chasing down projects. They just appear and... Are fun
0: Now you kind of guide people towards how they can study these but when you're helping them do you realize the the mind industry needs one approach the manuscripts need another approach and how do you analyze that to make sure you're using the right spectroscopy or the right methods for that
3: right so every time I sit down with one of the researchers I forget all the tools here we're going to talk about what are you actually trying to get Are you a startup company and you need a result this week? you know, preferably in the next two hours and you're not going to do replicates because you're not making a manuscript, you know, you just need, this works or doesn't work and this decides our company or are you a grad, Are you first year grad student and you're just terrified and can't admit that you don't know what's going on and you're lost and, and that's okay too, we'll slow down and just talk you through it, you know, or are you a postdoc who knows exactly what you're doing and I just need to point you in the right direction, you know, the tool you want's over there, go. Um, so there's a lot of, sitting down and taking time to talk to people. Um, uh, the world is increasingly busy and in getting a chance to sit down and talk to people. Faculty, unfortunately, these days often are so busy writing grants and things like that. They, A lot of the sitting down and just talking the students through things ends up, they're often quite grateful for it. Like, all right, 10 minutes, I'm gonna focus on you and we're gonna talk through your project. And then we're gonna go over to the instrument that I know you need to use and we'll write out the experiments that you need to do. If your goal is a manuscript, or if your goal is to make a product for the startup company and you just need to know if your process is working, yes or no, we'll design the experiment quickly on the fly to, to answer what your question is. Mm-hmm.
0: Nine years, hundreds of objects, you're kind of like a super expert at this point. Are you still excited? Does anything still fascinate you? Or are there certain things about what well, you can look back on the past and say, this was really interesting for me still?
3: Yeah. I'm still excited to, to go to work because there's still new things coming in. After nine years, I'm finishing out my second generation of grad students. Uh, grad school's roughly five years, uh, five to six years. So the first generation I came in with, I've graduated and I'm gone, and then the second generation is starting to talk about graduating, and I'm just getting old and nostalgic. I'm like, no, the, the fossils that are 4.6 billion years old are going to stop coming unless you, you hand you off your project to the next student. And It's still exciting because I get so many random things coming in. Research has fashions. There are things that are fashionable this year that won't be fashionable next year, and they come and go. Photonics was a buzzword in the, the 90s, so I got a photonics certificate from University of Pittsburgh, and then it sort of went out of fashion, and now it's back in fashion. And so I'm getting old and gray and, and <laughs> see the cycles, but it's still exciting. Science, the edge of science keeps going, and living sort of around the edge of science means it's always exciting, it's always different.
0: Is that excitement, what brings you joy every day, that brings you, wakes you up in the morning, brings you to work every day, or is there anything particular that you're going to your lab and saying, this thing that happens frequently is the source of my joy?
3: The source of my joy is probably the, the variety and the difference. I'm not doing the same thing every day, and I'm constantly sort of pushing the lab in new directions. I'm running out of physical space, but what can I cram in? Right now, we're trying to push the optics lab into more time resolved measurements and sort of study dynamics. We've done a lot of static stuff, but now that is sort of cut and dry, and I can do that with one hand, and I can try to push into some pump probe uh, spectroscopy time resolved things uh, that I did my undergraduate thesis and some of my postdoc work on.
0: Do you feel that you could you could look back on these nine years and there's one discovery that you made that was unexpected or a high point in your research?
3: Certainly the, the analyzing the, the photographic coatings and figuring out the sort of nuance to that. So to back up and, and give the listeners the background, the Harvard Library has a collection of photographs since photography was invented. Photography was invented in 1839. The Harvard Library's been around since 1636, so uh, they have yearbooks from every year of photography. And they were doing a survey of this salted paper print technology. That was the first technology where you could go from a negative to a positive. They, some of these were coded and the coating preserved the image beautifully and some of them weren't and had badly faded. And they wanted to know what the coatings were just for art history reasons, for preservation reasons, for just figuring out what was going on. So they came to me and said, you you do some chemical analysis. Yeah, I can do some chemical analysis. Well, we have these coatings and we want to know what they are. And I said, okay, that's great. But there's some requirements. You can't take a sample and you can't touch it and I can't leave the, the library due to insurance reasons, so uh, can, can you tell us what it is? Uh, I started going through my, my bag of tricks and we decided to do specular reflection, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, so we can just shine the infrared light down onto the object and collect the reflected light and the molecules will absorb specific frequencies of light and that will give us a signature of what the chemistry is, but the light is really gentle. It's from a silicon carbide glow bar, it's like a not very good Thomas Edison light bulb, you're just heating this element up until it glows. So the librarians were very comfortable with this amount of light on on their their samples and the fact that we could actually pull out the chemistry of these coatings with these, uh, we can't touch it, we can't take a sample, but we want to know what the chemistry is. The fact that it actually worked, like as I envisioned the first time, uh, was amazing. There was a, a photograph in my talk of right before we ran the first historic sample and The photograph after that would be my jaw hitting the floor because the the historic photograph matched our spectral library that we had developed perfectly. And I was just astounded that it had worked as envisioned the first time. Plenty of experiments have gone nowhere. (laughs) So for something to actually work and work well the first time was, was a lot of fun. I've ended up presenting that work and sort of progressions on that work. Uh, American Institute of Conservation Conferences and the National Fine Art Museum of Taiwan recently flew me out to one of their their conferences to talk about that work. So that's, I've got a lot of satisfaction out of that. And the library and art conservation people are all super friendly and just nice to work with.
0: Uh, I'm still fascinated with all the samples that are sent to you. You're getting rat brains and Mayan teeth. I mean, it's there's so much of a variety, but when I think of the moon, that sounds pretty interesting. When I think of dust, it seems kind of boring. Can you tell me something about lunar dust that I wouldn't know that's really fascinating to you?
3: One of the other staff members had at CNS had a connection to get a hold of some of the the geological samples that were packed up on the lunar lander on, during the Apollo 17 mission, the last mission to, to the moon, they had been packed up under vacuum on the lunar lander and then sort of forgotten about until recently. it put it in a, a closet and just sort of forgotten about it. And so he started unpacking these, and he gave me this, this tiny speck of dust. Um, the Apollo 17 landed at a site that was supposed to be looking for volcanic information, volcanic Mineralogy, and so it's this tiny, like hundred micron speck. Hundred microns is about the width of a human hair. Speck of dust, and asked me what 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 information could I pull out of it with all my tools. So I ran a Raman map of it, and it's a really weird mineralogy that's formed in a strange way. So a lot of things didn't match any of the libraries I had, but one of the inclusions in it uh, ended up popping out as uh, amorphous carbon, which. I've looked at amorphous carbon for lots of graphene. Samples end up being amorphous if they're not made right, and carbon nanotubes and things like that. So I've seen that all the carbon peaks a lot, and and they popped out. So there's this carbon inclusion in this uh, lunar dust sample that people got excited about, but then we all have too many projects, so we need to go back and uh, finish that out and actually publish that.
0: You've studied and applied spectroscopy, microscopy, and tomography for several years in your lab, what new direction is left? I mean, how, do you feel like you've hit a wall? How do you climb over a hill at this point?
3: The edge of science is always pushing farther. And so uh, we can push farther into the UV range that we haven't gotten to. So we can access wider bandgap materials. We can push into time-resolved measurements. We can push There are benchtop attosecond systems now, which get you into molecular dynamics. CNS has been pushing into scan probe spectroscopy techniques to push to smaller length scales. So most of what I do is far field optics. So we're diffraction limited, roughly 250 nanometers in in length if you want smaller than that. AFM will give you smaller than that. SEM will give you smaller than that. But they don't have any chemical information. You can do energy dispersive spectroscopy on the SEM, but that's like a micron length scale anyway, and it's just elemental. As I I like to joke, elemental doesn't do you any good because diamond and graphite are the same elemental composition, but my wife is never going to go for a graphite necklace. Uh, So as a vibrational spectroscopist, I'm biased towards doing molecular information, and so this scanning near field optical microscopy side where we can push the, the spatial limits down to 20 nanometers spatial information uh, and get molecular information is, is exciting.
0: How do you differentiate those? What are you looking for between those two analyses?
3: The, the analyses of elemental versus molecular. So the elemental techniques would be like X-ray fluorescence, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, energy dispersive spectroscopy they're satisfying because they give you an answer. They give you, it's one of these 118 elements on the periodic table. So people love to go to the XPS system at CNS. And my office mate, Greg Lynn, runs that. And so just because people come to our office, like help with the XPS. And if Greg's not there, I've learned to run it so I can just answer their questions and we can get beyond the panicked deer in the headlights look. The people will run the XPS system and it'll say you have, uh, one part titanium and two parts oxygen. So they're great. Have, I have TiO2. Okay, so you have TiO2. But, you know, what? what's the crystal structure? Is it anatase? Is it uh, rutile? Is it brookite? These have different physical properties. These have different electronic properties. What are you trying to do with it? So once you want to have a more sophisticated idea of how these are put together, you need to move to the vibrational spectroscopy techniques, which are Raman spectroscopy or... For a transform infrared spectroscopy. The issue is that vibrational spectroscopy has this double-edged knife that you see all the chemistry. So it's great to see all the chemistry, but sometimes seeing all the chemistry is overwhelming. And people want, especially the, the researchers coming from like XPS, they want to see a peak, they want to label it, that's titanium or that's carbon. And with FTIR and, and Raman, the peak shifts contain a lot of information. So like the secondary structure of proteins, whether the secondary structure, of the, so whether the secondary structure is folded up into an alpha helix or a beta sheet or a random coil, there's, it can shift from like 1630 wave numbers to 1670 wave numbers. And those are all your amide one stretch, which is a C double bond O hydrogen bonded to an NH. And just how they're oriented and how close they are will shift the peak. and so. There's a lot of information there, but it's sort of an overwhelming amount of information and the peaks move. And because the peaks move, that's extra information about your sample, but it also makes the interpretation that much harder.
0: FTIR spectroscopy is Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy?
3: Uh, Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy, yeah.
0: And then compared to Raman, which you're also working with, just break down, I guess, in layman terms, could you define both of those?
3: So, Molecules have different discrete vibrational energy levels. You can think of it as a ladder. And the molecule can go from one level on the ladder to another level of the ladder. In infrared, we send in all the wavelengths of infrared light. And then when a molecule can make a step from one level on the ladder to another level of the ladder, it will take the energy from the photon, destroying that photon and uh, moving the molecule up a level. So FTIR is a direct absorption measurement. uses a laser and shines a very narrow line width laser. And it sort of kicks the molecule off the ladder and then the molecule comes and lands back on the ladder somewhere. Sometimes it lands at a higher rung on the ladder. And when it lands at a higher rung due to conservation of energy, the photon that comes out, we we threw in a bunch of energy, the molecule went up, it came back down, it came back down to a different level and we gotta be good bookkeepers and account for all the energy. It will change the color of the photon that's scattered out. So they both tell you the energy difference between these rungs on on this ladder. Different molecules will have different uh, vibrational energy levels, different spacings of this ladder, and those, those are unique to the molecule. They're two different ways of measuring the vibrational energy spacing, and they provide nice complementary information. Raman has a higher spatial resolution. You can get down to 250 nanometers FTIR has spatial resolution of about 10 microns. Um, so depending, do you care about spatial resolution? Will your sample fluoresce? If it fluoresces, can we find a laser wavelength for Raman that will get you away from the fluorescence? Are you worried about photo damage? Do you want the much more gentle light of the FTIR? For um, FTIR, you need a change in the dipole moment for that vibrational motion to be IR active. For Raman, you need a change in polarizability for it to be Raman active. There's a lot of nuances. As an experimentalist, I tend to just say, "All right, let's stick it under both and see what happens," because I have access to benchtop FTIR, FTIR microscope, uh, two Raman microscopes with four hundred five nanometers, five thirty two nanometers, six thirty three nanometers, seven eighty five nanometers. I ha- I've over the past nine years, I've built up a big enough bag of tricks that I can probably get somewhere, and. If you have all the tools, you can just keep trying the next one to try, try to get that answer. you have a favorite? I, I do like the Ramen mapping. The Ramen mapping makes pretty pictures. and um, It's always easier to give a talk with pre- pretty pictures than squiggly lines. As much as I love spectroscopy at the end of the day, it's just another squiggly line. And if you can render a, a nice ramen map with a pretty picture, it just, it makes everything that much nicer.
0: If a student is undergraduate, graduate student, doctoral student, how do you give them encouragement? If they say, I want to work with Dr. McClellan one day, what would you say to them?
3: Be curious. Don't shut yourself out of different fields just because you say, oh, I'm trained as a physicist, which is what I'm trained as. I can't possibly do biology. You you can certainly learn biology. You can certainly learn chemistry. Be curious. Ask lots of questions. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and say, I don't know. Can you repeat that? Can you phrase that differently? It's always scary to to display a little bit of vulnerability and say, I don't know. But asking questions is how you get answers. And being curious and asking questions is how you have fun and make advances in science.
0: In all of the research that you're doing right now in spectroscopy, what do you see coming at us in the near future? Whether 10 years from now, 100 years from now, do you see just wild sci-fi coming at us?
3: I think we are getting much closer to the (laughs) tricorder. From Star Trek. From Star Trek, the, the tricorder that Spock had that would just analyze anything. Instruments are getting miniaturized all the time. We're getting much closer to the tricorder. I think the exciting thing that's coming up now is the the machine learning and the, the multivariate analysis that can be done. The computing power is finally there to handle the thousand variables you get out of one spectrum. When I started doing spectroscopy, one spectrum was one measurement in my head. And the, the mathematicians said, no, 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 that's a thousand parallel measurements. You've just made a thousand independent measurements. Now you can do multivariable statistics. And once you do multivariate analysis, you can extract so much more information out of it. Idea of chemometrics and machine learning and and being able to handle all the data. When I first started in research labs, just doing the experiment was the hard part. And and you spent all your time just trying to get it done. Now, computers and instruments have been automated enough. Doing the experiment's not so hard, but you can generate so much data and trying to pull the information out of the the big pile of data. So all these things that are going on with big data and machine learning, I think they're starting to transfer over to spectroscopy, but I think there's a lot more subtle information in the spectra that we can start to pull out now.
0: That's Dr. Arthur McClelland. He's the principal scientist at the Center for Nanoscale Systems at Harvard University. Arthur, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
2: Today's episode is sponsored by ComSol, the leading developer of multi physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. ComSol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling imaging and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing and communication systems, and more. See how the COMSOL software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com. And by PI Physique Instrumenta. PI manufactures world-class precision motion control, alignment, and automation systems, including air bearings, hexapods, and piezo drives, at locations in North America, Europe, and Asia. PI's customers are leaders in high-tech industries and research institutes, In fields such as photonics, biotech, life sciences, semiconductors, and aerospace, visit www.pi-usa.us.
0: That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthings at photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to the complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media Production.